Theater has been doing improv comedy from the beginning. But truth be told, we didn't really know what we were doing back in those early days. We learned a lot of basic games, mostly from the famous Viola Spolin book, Improvisation for the Theater, which we scoured for improv techniques and exercises. We did improv scenes at workouts, and we had a lot of fun from the get-go. But there are indeed certain basic rules of improvisation, like saying yes finding specifics and details in scenes, and working to help one's partner, which are frankly kind of hard to intuit. We started looking for help from our early days, back in 1979. And by January 1980, we began attending workshops in San Francisco. Pamela Stoneham joins me in doing some reflecting. As I recall, in January 1980, and it may have been you who sussed out, Jim Crana was doing workshops at the... Um, old Spaghetti Factory. At the Old Spaghetti Factory, and also at the boarding house. In San Francisco. Yeah. Well, they were performing at the boarding house, um, the committee. Yeah. Um, which was a spinoff of Second City, right? Yeah. That or was, uh, the and Compass, also, or whatever but, it was called. Yeah, there was also the uh, uh, p Pixel Players or something like yeah. that. I think you heard about workshops. And so in January 1980, we went down as a group and went to our first improv workshops. And I think we were actually doing some improv before we went there a little bit. We had just sort of dipped our toe in the water of it and didn't really know anything about what we were doing, except we knew we wanted to do it. Yeah. And then, yeah, we went, all went down to San Francisco together. It was the big outing, I'll, I'll never forget, and um, got totally excited about it. I remember just loving going down there, and it was just so cool to be down with people who were doing it. We, I, I learned a lot from them. I've been doing this, what, 42 years now? That's where I fell in love with it the first time. The art of improv was doing it in that group and going, this is something I could really enjoy. I mean, it's just everything was new. It was always new, and it still is. That's the cool part. Hit and Run Theater progressed over the course of the 1980s, mostly by making mistakes, but often by meeting people more experienced than us. Tracy Burns takes us further. Well, we started what we affectionately called bar prov, you know, which was literally we played in bars. In fact, I was playing in bars before I was 21, and I'd have to sit in Peter Litt's office or sit outside in between sets because I wasn't allowed in the bar because I wasn't of age. So it was uh, Viola Spolin inspired a lot and it was, or it was just simple. Who am I? Where am I? What am I doing? And then go. I, I remember one time at the seagull, it was a fairy tale, but you change the emotions or you change something. And I was sitting at sort of very precariously perched um, at kneeling down in front of you. And it turned into something, I don't remember what it was, but you knocked me down too hard. You didn't realize that you had pushed me and it, I hit the ground and it knocked all the wind out of me and I was on the ground and I couldn't breathe. I mean, literally I was, I had no breath. I was just, and then finally it was like, <gasps> you know, 
<laughs> but you know, show and I then I just kept going with the show. The improv, we you know, we did that for what I think five years before we got introduced to theater sports. Um, when we went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and ended up meeting a guy named Brian Loman who ended up being in our show at, that we took to Edinburgh, and he introduced us to this thing called theater sports. The originator of theater sports and the writer of a book called Impro was an English theater director by the name of Keith Johnstone, who had studied improvisational theater in relatively revolutionary ways. By the end of the 1980s, Tracy and Doug, Ellen, Pamela, and Kathy all had taken Johnstonian improv classes through Bay Area theater sports or in Europe or other places. Brian Lohman and Drew Letchworth of Bay Area Theater Sports were some of our first theater sports coaches. Pamela and Ellen played for bats, and Burns and Nunn experienced a heck of a lot more in British workshops. Tracy Burns fills us in on what Burns and Nunn learned while working in Britain. That was Keith Johnstone started and his work from his book Impro. And that was a game changer for both of us and for many people. Uh, there was such structure and beautiful, this leads to that. You learn this skill, you learn that skill to tell stories. And it was storytelling, it was acting. There was, it wasn't just gags and dumb jokes. It had purpose, that changed everything. And then became very involved in theater sports for many years before Bay Area theater sports, before it was Bay Area theater sports, San Francisco, we did that, became, we moved to London, we helped introduce theater sports to London. In England, we you, you became the artistic directors and then, you know, helped in Germany. Pamela, Ellen, Kathy, Tracy, and I all took classes via Bay Area theater sports, aka BATS and other places, and we were suddenly aware of a new vocabulary of improvisation. I think this gave us an advantage we hadn't previously had and brought better storytelling and scene work to most improv games we played. In the early part of this new century, we rebuilt the long-fragmented hit-and-run theater to include new players and have been doing regular improv shows locally ever since. Around 2002 or so, we invited actress Anne Ryman, multilingual Uta Rowland, and experienced musical performer Jill Lemus into the group. A few years later, we asked Steve Antler, Christine Samus, and Ken Krause to join us. And as we brought other people into workshops and into the group, I think we were able to pass on more joy and a sense of, I'll figure this out, for new players. Here are some thoughts on starting improv from Ken Krause, Mindy Ballantyne, Janet Atherton, and Christine Samus. I went to the workshops and it was very interesting doing theater games, improv games, and word ball and things like that. It started me feeling more comfortable just saying what came into my mind at the time and like not holding back, not saying, well, maybe that's not good. Maybe I should think of something else. Just saying the first thing that came into my mind. And that really started exercising a different muscle that way. Oh my gosh, I was so excited. I was so excited. I saw one of the flyers for improv workshop and I just I could not wait. I was so I remember calling you and being like, Hi, hi, I'm Mindy Valentine. Can I come to the work? And you were just, yeah, come on, come on, come on. And um, so yeah, I was so excited. That first workout was just, I mean, you know, I was like, this is where I want to be. These are my people. We're having fun, laughing. I still even remember like some of the games from that first workshop. I was just so ecstatic to be playing with you guys. So that was great. Yeah, I thought it was a, you know, 
it's such a, a, a fun, crazy, different thing. I'm going to give it a go. I kept saying to myself, I'd love seeing you guys and never thought I would ever be on the stage. I just thought I would be uh, something fun to learn and do as I was getting back into uh, uh, finding things for myself to do in life after being a provider and a full-time mother. It was just fun. And it's also, you push yourself. You have to learn things about yourself and learn things about working together. And it's just a great laugh too. So I never thought I'd ever, it was, I wasn't doing it in the hopes of being accepted and moving on to the stage per se. It was just uh, a great fun way to spend your time and get to know in the camaraderie of it all. I think that I've learned an awful lot from improv. I think that there's a certain kind of, I mean, yes, and the cardinal rule, the only rule of improv is a great way to approach life, isn't it? Um, uh, Here's this. I mean, it's actually quite Buddhist when you think about it, that you're saying, yes, here here is this. And now what will I do with it? And I have a natural tendency towards some anxiety. And yes, and is very helpful. And the camaraderie of it all came together in a lot of bits where we had to work as an ensemble, like ARMS, which is one of the oldest improv skits known to humanity. ARMS, or HANDS, or any variety of names, is recorded in Italian improv Lazzi, or tricks, as far back as the 1640s. There are multiple ways to play arms, but in this hit-and-run version, Steve Weingarten plays an inventor who must guess what he has invented. His arms are not his own, but belong rather to Christine Samus, who uses them to give Steve hints while Doug plays the role of his questioner and facilitator. Because we have one of the great inventors uh, of modern times here, Mr. Scuba Weingarten. I wonder if you might describe Scuba. Sorry, I was was adjusting my other Scuba. Get out of the 
Find this place where I eat tortillas. <laughs> it grabs me. It holds me, and I want to get out of it. And so, and then I threw the hula. And it seems to work. Something that you hold on to something with you. Sort of I, I grab onto it. What? Yeah. What is it you're calling that? Well, I was. <laughs> I have forgotten for the moment, but it's coming back to me now. But the first word sounds like uh, a fist. A uh, fist thing, and then unfortunately I don't know saying like. Because Hit and Run Theater springs from the fairly unpopulated north coast of California, we often have to look for players from a variety of places, and that often meant younger improvisers. Because I also coached the Mendocino High School Improv Club, I had access to a lot of good young players, many of whom were quite willing to get more stage time and learn new games. They also didn't mind playing with older players. Alanya Eisenberg, who started improvising at 14 and is still at it 20 years later across multiple cities, was delighted at the opportunity, and she was instantly fun to play with. And really kind of an honor, you know, to to be with the local celebrities, because <laughs> that's kind of what you all were to me. And um, and then I'm just so grateful that it clicked and that I got to end you know, do shows and continue to grow as a performer. And, and it was really unique because I had an opportunity to play with experienced performers and it was multi-generational, you know, I was a teenager and you guys were seasoned performers and there was something really unique and special about that. I felt very lucky to be a part of it. I, constantly surprised myself. So things would come out of my mouth 
that I didn't know where they came from. And I guess you didn't either. (laughs) So, you know, that's the great thing about improv. It's just, you don't know what's coming. So I don't know. That's very nice to hear, but I didn't know that that was a special talent. I think I I think maybe that's just something you recognized in me, and I and I appreciate that. In addition to Alanya, we brought in high schoolers Jason Castle and the multilingual Leandro Sariche. We also included Dan Sullivan, who was my next-door neighbor and who I had been coaching since he was in the sixth grade. Dan had a uniquely comic book mind and a perhaps exaggerated perspective on joining Hit and Run Theater. That was how I was growing up, is watching Titans on stage make amazing humor. I just wanted to emulate. It's such an interesting feeling when you see people that you're so enamored with because of what they're capable of in humor. And you're like, how do I do that? How do I be like that? So when you talk to me about doing this, I think if I remember correctly, I probably just, you know, was like, oh, wow, you know, that sounds really great. And then I went home and looked at my Beatles poster and fainted. (laughs) It was total Beatlemania for me because for me, that moment was like if the Justice League was asking you to be on the team. You know, it's like you're you're sitting there with an ice cream in your hand looking and Superman and Green Lantern or, you know, knocking down Lex Luthor. And then all of a sudden Green Lantern comes down and goes, hey, listen, kid, do you want to shag some balls? And it's like, okay, great, I suppose. It was also fairly exciting for 17-year-old Nicole Paravicini who had sung in lots of musicals, but had never improvised in a bar before. And I was super nervous because, you know, I was a 17-year-old kid and you were all experienced improv professionals. So I was, you know, really honored that you asked me to, to join you. Um, but again, like, even though I was really nervous, everyone is really welcoming and just the energy that you all facilitate um, in the rehearsal space and everyone is just having such a good time. Um, And I I think everyone really, um, you know, wanted to make sure that I was, you know, comfortable and uh, that really, that really showed. But I just remember, I don't remember very much to be, to be honest. I think I just totally I I try and recall, you know, memories from shows and it's just like a blank slate. I think because of the nerves, I can't remember anything. I just remember things that that people tell me afterwards or like if somebody filmed it a bit, it's like, oh, yeah, (laughs) but it's hard for me to remember um, anything that happened on stage. And sometimes those first shows were kind of overwhelmingly nerve wracking. Christine relates her feelings on her first show back in the spring of 2009. And then I thought, okay, I can do this. And then as the day grew nearer, I thought, I can't do this. I absolutely cannot do this. And on the day of, I was absolutely terrified. I woke up in the morning with a stomach ache and I thought, this is really stupid. I really fucked up. I have to get out of this no matter what. And I thought, well, what can I do? Can I fake an illness? What can I do? And I thought, well, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to drive really far away and they won't be able to find me. So I figured I'll go to Bakersfield because I have a cousin who lives there. And um, I was born in Bakersfield too. So returned to my roots and I thought, okay, I'm doing it. I'm getting in the car. I'm going to Bakersfield. I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. I really was terrified. I'm I'm not kidding you. I was really, really nervous. And I kept thinking... Well, you know, I've been through really tough things in my life. I'll just live through this. And then, you know, I'll tell them I never want to do this again. And this is, you know, this is terrible, terrible. And then um, I had the first opportunity to be in a bit 
and people started laughing. And I got this feeling. It was like there's this really interesting kind of tension or something that happens. People start laughing at you, and then you kind of like start playing back to it. I mean, I don't know. Is it hamming it up? I don't know what it is. But it's sort of like you kind of get it that you can... They start actually leading you. The audience starts being puppeteers because they start doing something and responding and you see them and feel them responding and then you do something back and then they respond to that. Anyway, first laugh, completely hooked. I just thought, this is amazing. And then I felt like I, I felt like, I don't care what happens. <laughs> I want to do this all the time. It was a lot of fun for Christine and for all concerned, but yeah, it is hard to remember what you just did in that bit a few moments ago. And most of the time, you don't remember that you don't remember anything. You just have fun in the moment. A game that often feels completely freeform for a player is where one must play a translator or translate poems or lines of dialogue for another player. Someone can be speaking a gibberish language and making it sound like so much gobbledygook, and one must make it sound viable as English. Context helps, as does game structure. We have long done a game called Poet Translator. Here, Christine's poem, representing Swiss poet Gudrun Stech, is translated by yours truly, while Steve Weingarten gives us a physical interpretation. Granted, you can't see his physicalizing, but you can hear the audience response and enjoy the poem. Ladies and gentlemen, we're very fortunate tonight because we have a moment of culture in this show. Uh, there's going to be, we have the uh, poet laureate of what great country that doesn't speak English. Switzerland, I heard. Yes, we have the poet laureate of Switzerland here to do her fabulous poem. What's the title of that poem that's never been done before? Lots of Mountains. What's that? Lots of Mountains. Lots of Mountains, the Swiss classic. Hey, gentlemen, let's hear it for the Swiss poet laureate, Miss Kudrin Schweck. <laughs> I throw back my head 
grab myself by the thighs and pull loose on the yoga. <laughs> Often nothing comes out. <laughs> The first time I climbed the Matterhorn, I did it on the back of a turtle. It was an extraordinary ride. I bumbled and rolled and gesticulated, and the turtle wore me out. talks about when you're doing improv you don't have to memorize any lines you know there's a reason to do improv right there it's probably good to know you know things about theater thespianism you know what what's downstage what's upstage it's good to have a, a sense of theater presence and i've enjoyed that i've enjoyed that very much you get to create characters there have been a number of times when i've jumped into a swimming pool thinking i'll make a big splash and then you, you know you notice there's no water in the swimming pool and then what do you do? For me, the idea would be to simply do a beautiful swan dive. Uh, you know, make sure your form is perfect because, uh, you know, go out with a bang or something, but give it your best, whatever it is, commit to it. And now that's more or less a way of approaching work. Also, if you leave room for something to happen, you might start with an idea, but you've got to trust that maybe something better is going to happen within the bit. You might be doing it on your own. You might be doing it with three other people. You have to instill whatever it is you're doing with a certain amount of trust. And oftentimes that trust is rewarded with the better idea down the road. Or you, you come to the end of the day and you haven't figured out this problem and you sleep on it. And the next, the next morning you wake up and you say, I have it. Well, for some reason, your brain clicks in at a certain time. Whiny's take is a perceptive one. And he always seemed to be having a good time on stage whether improvising or just doing skits. 
He has been with the group since 1982 and partook of our rebuilding era and when we were invited to be regulars at the Hill House by Patty DiMatteo and Mendocino Stories in 2008. We did weekend shows in every season of the year for the next eight years. Okay, so June 08 was our first show together and uh, we just did one. And that was our first show, our last show was June of 2016. And that was due to a change in ownership. We had 44 shows all together and over 4,000 attendees plus, I don't know if I counted all the volunteers that uh, also took part, but um, it was quite, <laughs> quite impressive. Some Saturday nights, wow, I'm looking and it says, 143 one Saturday night, over 100 in most of the Saturday nights. Patty did indeed give us a consistent venue and saw a lot of different skits and games over the next many years. And she knew her favorites. Well, I like the car genre where the drivers would change and everybody would shift around the car. So the new driver would then be in charge of what the genre was and everybody, the passenger and the two people in the back seat, had to then change their conversation to that genre. That was really fun. I like genre car a lot. That's one of my favorite bits because we depend on the audience to give us genres. And a lot of times our audience is not real familiar with genres. <laughs> so, so they come up with things that are just off the wall. I remember one time getting, I was in genre car and the genre I was given was tractors. And I was like, uh, okay, you know, that's an interesting genre. The way that I dealt with it was to introduce it as, thank you for buying a new John Deere tractor. This is your video to tell you about your new purchase. And I did it that way as a, as a way of making it work. <laughs> Yeah! <laughs> Take my little 
steel mounter. Another one was the uh, goddess. Okay, I love the goddess. It was usually three women, and each member of Hit and Run had to say one word, so it passed along to the next one to actually come up with a sentence. There were questions. There was another Hit and Runner who had the questions, and the goddess had to answer that. That was pretty surprising too. The premise of that one was mostly that Whiny would make a trek high into the mountains. And uh -huh. he would then search out the goddess, and the goddess had three heads. Oh, and okay. he spoke one head, spoke one word at a time. Oh, okay. And, and they yeah. would do it. And it usually was um, Kathy, Jill, and Christine. One classic that Kathy and Christine and I have done for years is the goddess. And the goddess goes to the mountain, and usually Steve is the man who comes up the mountain with the question for the goddess. And so we speak one word at a time, uh, giving advice to this penitent that comes up the mountain. And it's an old bit of just word at a time, but we um, adjusted it so that we sort of do a crazy hippie dance while we're uh, giving our definition of uh, his question. And it's turned out to always be really a, f a crowd favorite and a favorite of ours. The question will come from you. What significant question would you like to have answered in front of you this evening? Why is money green and where is the money gone? Why is money green and where is the money gone? Thank you. I don't have to synapse. Thank you very much. Why is money green and where has it gone? Well, folks, we are of great opportunity this evening, for I have traveled far, many, many, many a mile to the top of this mountain, and I have come here to ask the goddess this question of money. Goddess, where are you? Oh, the goddess has arrived.
out the importance of getting your head around the riddles and puzzles involved in various games. I just thought it was really fun. It seemed like it was puzzles. It seemed like I was solving some sort of a puzzle. And so I just kind of got interested in solving the puzzle of, okay, here's, you know, like, okay, here's a game that we're going to do. And everybody is going to say a line beginning with the, you know, the alphabet. Next, so A, B, C, start a line with A, start a line with B. And and so I was just interested in playing along, solving the puzzle. And one of those puzzly games is Spelling Bee. Jill tells us how to play. Well, Spelling Bee is always fun because we get to act like we're grade school kids and we're kind of saucy and, and so proud of ourselves spelling. That one's always fun. And then we get to do word at a time uh, as a definition, which always comes out crazy. That's totally fun. And uh, we do a couple of other ones that are word at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, we're very fortunate because we have a group of the finest spellers in Mendocino County here with us tonight. We'd like to bring them out right now. And uh, they have come here to challenge you, the audience, to challenge them. So they will go through a series of words at your instigation. We wonder if we might uh, have from you a, something you might find in a, a single syllable in a first grade spelling book primer. 
Fox. What's that? Fox. Spot. 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 Thank you very much. The word is spot. Spot. S. P. O. T. Spot. Good. Good. I, I wonder if you might use it in a perhaps a Dick and Jane primer type book. Spot. One. Day. Spot. Ram. Spot. Spot. <laughs> up to fourth grade or in a regular spelling book, what's a word you might find in a fourth grade type spelling book? Humidify. <laughs> <laughs> Humidify. Sorry, the, the gate program stuck. Humidify. Humidify. H-U-M-I-D-I-F-Y. Humidify. I wonder 
wonderful line from Mary Poppins, where she uses the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Even though I sound rather happy, it will make you so happy atrocious. Another game that Jill and the women of Hit and Run have always enjoyed is called Handbag. Like most improv games, it comes from a standard comic ruse, where a comedian would borrow a woman's purse and start going through it in front of an audience. I've seen it done on numerous stages. Our version requires two or three players to grab purses from willing audience members and see where they can go. Jill explains further. Handbag, you ask the audience if they are willing to hand over their purse uh, for to help in a scene. And so they think you're just going to wear it like you're going shopping or something. But whoever gets a bag, and sometimes we have two, sometimes we have three bags on stage, to the horror and the delight of the audience, we start going through their purses. We go through the bag, put on their sunglasses. I'll never get forget the time Christine pulled out a cigarette of somebody's bag and and pretended to smoke it and passed them around. And I thought, oh, what if that girl is hiding the fact that she's a smoker? You know, we're really gonna get in trouble. So yeah, that one's fun. And um, one time I grabbed my sister's bag and I gave it to Kathy and there were like six sets of keys in there because my sister's city clerk and she runs another foundation and her house keys and she had her daughter's car keys. And Kathy pulls out five or six key rings full of keys and she goes, I don't know which car we should take tonight. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful moment. And there's endless possibilities because you never know what you're gonna find in somebody's bag. As Whiney pointed out earlier, his brain clicked in at a certain time and he was able to physicalize the words that went with Christine's garbled Swiss German in the poet translator. That brain clicking in also happens for Ken Krause in a way that he calls finding the button. I, over time, have trained as a voiceover artist. And one of the things in voiceover, there's not as much improv, of course, because you normally you're working with scripts. But at the end of a script where the ending comes and you say the thing that kind of closes it up, it's called the button. And that, to me, is in improv, finding a button at the end is, is a lot of fun. If I can find that. And sometimes I think I've found a button and we keep going. <laughs> so... But but a lot of times it's fun just to have the thing that kind of puts the quotation mark at the end of the phrase. So One of Doug's favorite improvised scenes is point of view monologue, where two players do complimentary monologues in which they both give their perspective on some major event. Let's say a wedding or a divorce or even a riot. Players trade back and forth in telling a story. Doug's had good success with all his teammates on this, especially Christine, Kathy, and Dan Sullivan, with whom Doug thoroughly enjoys going odd places together. One of the things that I've found so enjoyable about doing tag team monologue with you, especially, has been moments of creating either conflict, consequence, or story. You know, just general story. I don't remember the particulars of it, because like I said, you know, I come off of stage and I'm like, what just happened? But I do remember... We started a, a tag team monologue where you came out very cantankerous 
and, and which I mean, I know I could safely say we've done that a million times before, but you came out alarmingly cantankerous. And so I just piggybacked off of everything you did in that sense where I didn't feel like I was copying you. I felt like you were elevating every bit of the of the scene. And so it was just so much fun to kind of blow that up. Sometimes Ken's notion of finding the button is a very lucky thing in that the audience suggestion we get doesn't always help. Sometimes it can be downright counterproductive. Listen to Ken deal with a tough suggestion in a very positive way. Here in a song he sings with Joshua called The Prison Song.
Now that's what we call dealing with a tough suggestion. Song or musical improv can be fairly challenging, but also loads of fun. In the early days of Hit and Run, we often found it baffling. We did some musical improv, but mostly left the performances to our band, The Orc, with Laura Jean Cardinal doing most of the improvised singing. We had semi-regular gigs at the Seagull Cellar Bar in Mendocino from 1982 through 1984, and The Orc led this section of the show. But I remember that was when we first came up with the idea of taking suggestions from the audience as to how we would do a song we were kind of familiar with. And it evolved from, I think, Laura Jean started at working with Hit and Run Theater and that you would just start speaking in other languages or gobbledygook languages or pretend French or pretend German or Italian. So she, we would either sing a song in a, in a different language or we would do it and we'd ask for suggestions. What do you want this to be? Reggae? What do you want? So they, they would throw out, well, let's do that reggae or do it in a different style. And we were adept at working with each other that someone could throw out an idea and we would just take the song that we would normally play in one way and then we would just play it in a completely different manner. The Orc did some really fun stuff with Hit and Run back then and Laura Jean could do some excellent gibberish singing. When Hit and Run did shows on their own, Margie Crowningshield often accompanied them at Crown Hall or the Casper Community Center. Margie had done a lot of songwriting both on her own and for the group, most especially in the Arnold Vicious era. She had also written numerous songs for various of our Hidden Run and Burns and Nun shows, but she was the first to admit that improvising songs in the moment was quite a challenge indeed. We watched other groups and came up with some new musical improvs for our shows. One of our early favorites was Madrigal, where we tried to blend voices in the style of a pseudo-medieval madrigal. The Ace Mule, the make-believe heroine of the North Coast. What might she be called? Magic Mouse. 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 Oh, <laughs> 
run theater was always keen to improve musically. Back in the 1980s, hit and runner Harry Rothman was a very solid singer and sang in many musicals for Gloriana Opera Company. But few of the rest of us were musically trained. Still, we loved being part of our musical shows, the Arnold Vicious Punk Opera and Rockalypse. In the 1990s, when we started the Mendocino Comedy Festival and regularly had L.A. theater sports up for summer shows, we also included Joshua Raul Brody and Laura Derry, musicians from Bay Area theater sports. In addition, we brought up keyboardist Alan Simpson from L.A. a few times for shows. By the early 2000s, Joshua and Laura were regular visitors and added immensely to our shows. And Joshua began workshopping with us on a regular basis. Joshua Brody, who is a musician who accompanies us, and we are so lucky to have him. He's a brilliant musician in his own right. And then he is just sensitive and he is as solid as a rock. When he starts playing something and one of us is going to sing with that accompaniment, we know we're going to be fine because he'll just make what he's playing really clear and it's just really easy to hear him and to sing. And he's been an absolutely reliable and generous musician for all of us. For I have lost track of how many years, just year after year after year. Well, at first, that was one thing that I was really, um, I really had to concentrate on uh, being able to just sing and not plan because all the singing I'd ever done before was all rehearsed for Gloriana, of course. But with the help of Laura, and we used to have Margie Crowning Shield, and especially with uh, Joshua, who has given us all a lot of confidence and a lot of tips on how to present a song, that I think our group in the last 10 years has really, really improved and become pretty good at improvised songs. And it's very, very fun. The musical stuff is a whole different experience for me. It almost feels to me like it's a different animal than the regular improv because I feel it's so special. I mean, the, the workshops with Joshua, when we did with our, you know, little group that was mostly together, I don't know, what, six, eight years ago, with that little crew of people, I felt like whenever we did the first Joshua workshop, it felt like, well, it felt like some kind of therapy thing to me. It felt like we got a chance for everybody to do something where they were allowed to shine. We all got to witness how, I mean, it, you feel really vulnerable when you're doing the musical stuff sometimes. And, and it seems like there's a little more seriousness or there can be. Well, it's a very, very special skill. Learning to listen, see what people are doing, hear what people are doing, figure out how to do harmonies, figure out how to do contrapuntal things. I mean, it's creating music in the moment is, I mean, it's jazz, right? It's, it's, it's pretty cool. So it's got that kind of quality. And I've got a great big loud voice. I was told one time that I have not so much skill as abandon or something along those lines. And so I get to use that there because I don't really worry about is my voice good or not. I just want it to be heard and I want to be able to participate. Here's one example of a point of view song with Laura Derry accompanying Christine, Whiny, and Ken as they offer three different musical perspectives on A Day at the Beach. Oh, I see oil on me. 
Longtime musical improviser Joshua Raul Brody fills us in on how he workshops with our group. It's clear that you love singing. You uh, devote a lot more of your warm-up time to the musical end of things than you do to the non-musical stuff, which is unusual in my experience. I'll generally start with the basics. You know, uh, first of all, a little pep talk, encouraging those that are scared of singing, those that are scared of song improvisation, but also those that are scared of singing at all. And there are all too many of them. Song improvisation is a great way around that hesitation. And then a warm up, you know, of the instrument, which is your body, you know, you warm up your, uh, your breathing, you warm up your physicality, you do some stretching exercises, and then a whole bunch of time is spent just vocalizing and just exploring what your voice can do. I used to like to say that most Western people are only used to doing two things with their body, either shaking hands or fucking. And there are so many other things to do to, to connect physically with another person. There's massage, there's hugs, there's dancing, there's, you know. In the same way, there's so many things more to do with your voice than what most people do, which is talk. And occasionally, you know, scream an epithet if they hit their thumb with a hammer. But there's such a wide range of singing and there's such a wide range of different things you can apply the singing voice too. There's songs, but there's also just, you know, the glory of a beautiful day. Ah, you know? So I, I try to remind people of that. I try to re explore all these little nooks and crannies that their voice is capable of doing that they just don't get to do and that have gotten a little rusty. We do a little ear training, a little 
uh, matching notes. Uh, not that note matching is that important. And then warming up the rhyming muscle. A common line of mine is not all songs rhyme and a lot of songs rhyme really badly, but it's still a good place to start just to warm up the, the word generation part of the equation and then putting them together through simple things like couplets and limericks and then limericks to music and then uh, singing songs, improvising songs. So those are the steps that I go through when I'm introducing anybody to the craft of song improvisation. You guys have obviously been through that stuff with me a lot. And the thing that impresses me the most is that you keep up with those skills uh, when I'm not there. Uh, so that when I come back, it's not like starting over from scratch. Although I've been known to start over from scratch <laughs> regardless, just because that's the way I'm used to teaching. But then there's the advantage of you guys' experience and you guys' stick-to-itiveness that I can... Um, plunge you into the deep end of the pool when I come up with more advanced stuff and also stuff that I've just thought about and haven't really tried out. You guys are very willing guinea pigs and I've always enjoyed working with you on that level. Willing guinea pigs indeed. I think a general feeling in our group over the last dozen years or so is that music improv workshops with Joshua are as much fun as the shows. Here Christine and Nicole describe their joy at these workshops. Songs he's the stage. best. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah, Joshua. It's an amazing experience yeah. to be able to be with Joshua. I mean, I really think they're transformational. I think that it, for me, it seems like I've learned some things about, you know, trusting my gut. And, you know, you just come in with something and then go with it. I mean, improv is that way in general. You just kind of go. You show up and you act as if that's what I intended to do. And then you go from there. But the musical stuff. It just has, it's my heart. I love the musical stuff. Yeah. That is honestly some of the most fun I've ever had in my entire life is just improv singing. I had never had an opportunity to do that before. And um, I'd taken a, a couple of his workshops prior to you asking me to join Hit and Run. And I just enjoyed it so much. And I was so excited to get to do that more. And there's really nothing else like it. It's truly like, gosh, it's just euphoric because he's so talented. He's such an amazing, I mean, accompanist isn't even the right word because he's creating the music from just from scratch. It's so fun to sing with him because he's just, he's so good at like knowing, at kind of sensing where you're going to take the song. And it's just this amazing like back and forth that I just like, I'm just smiling so much thinking about it. I couldn't help but wondering what goes through Joshua's mind as he creates an improv song. So I asked him, let's follow Joshua as he fills us in on a potential musical improv journey. There's two, at least two things. There's probably a bunch of unconscious stuff going on as well that I can't talk about because it's unconscious. But there's two conscious things. One is the semantic content of the title is, you know, suggesting a mood or a place or an emotion or an attitude or an energy. You know, if I hear something like the bank robbery, that's going to suggest a darker tone, but also an urgency for the excitement of the bank robbery of the scene. If I hear something like, I feel so comfortable in your arms, well, that's a romantic ballad and it's kind of lazy and it's kind of laid back. So I'm going to play something slower. It's probably going to be in a major key. And then the other thing is the rhythm of the words of the title. So if the title is Come Away With Me, right? So in the intro, I might play a, a rhythmic phrase 
a melodic phrase that has the rhythm of the words, come away with me. And the singer may pick up on that. They may hear it and go, ah, I hear something else. Or they may not even be aware that I'm doing it at all. And I may keep providing it, even if they're singing different words. I met you on a started night. And then, you know, even though the words aren't exactly going with the melody that I'm playing, I'm still providing it as part of the accompaniment. And they may or may not come around to it when it gets to the chorus. So those are the two things. One is the, the mood that the word suggests, and the other is the rhythm that the word suggests. And this is how one improvised Joshua song worked, Nasty Woman Blues, with Nicole Paravicini and me, Kathy, and Jill on backups. One of the best kept secrets of improv groups is that a good lighting techie person is like a really powerful secret weapon. To put it in basketball parlance, it's like a good sixth man, like having John Havlicek come off the bench. For the great majority of the last three decades, we've had two lighting techies from the same relationship, Eileen Wolf and Sally Wersen. But often, we haven't had the best equipment, no matter where we've played. I like that quote, the technological backwardness. When we were in Crown, we had a light board. Rickety, but it was a light board. And that's really fun to do. You know, like I know at Casper, we'll have a toggle switch. And in some ways, it's easier because it's just about shading. You know, you're not using color. 
and you're not using lights that are shining on different parts of the stage. So in some ways, it's much more simple, but in other ways, it's harder because you want to light up over here. I want to yell out at you, hey, you know, center stage, center stage, you know, or stage right. And, you know, but I don't do that. Whereas having a board that has different colors and power, it's great to like, if you're walking across the stage to be able to follow you, you know, and I love that, but it's also more difficult, you know, because where are you going to go? This isn't a scripted show. Go out here and then go back. And obviously, doing lights for an improv show is not always an easy task. Yet Sally has met the challenge on many occasions. Yeah, and we, we should probably say that our standard operating procedure is normally I wave or whoever's directing or whatever yeah. waves the scene out. And that's your connection to you. Then you see that and you black the scene out. That's right. But there are, I don't know, probably one out of five or six times it, where there comes a scene end where you black it out on a point where you think it's a good time to do that. Tell right. us about that decision and how you make it. <laughs> so you're asking me the hard ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, because you've always said, leave them laughing, leave them on, leave them on the high note. And so I have, I've been there long enough with you guys that um, I trust my judgment and it's not always right. You know, sometimes I'll make a mistake, but it's just like if the scene, if it's a perfect, a perfect line that someone's delivered and the only place that in, you know, in the quick thinking that I'm trying to do, it's only going to continue on, not with the high line, then I'll, that's, that is my decision to do that. It's really hard because I know I've made mistakes. I remember you coming to me one time after a show, you said, why did you go out then? I said, uh, I thought it was a good idea, <laughs> you know, and, um, and you're so kind because I'm not mad. I just want, I just want to know, you know, and it's like, yeah, that's, that's fine. But then there are times when I wish I had done it and I, you know, and I will let the scene go on. I mean, I actually sometimes feel like, you know, I've got the power, and <laughs> which I do, you know, and in some ways, because, well, I have the literal power, the electric power, but, you know, in like, I could end this scene anytime I wanted, but it really puts me on my toes. And oh, one of the hardest things to do is when it's a great scene and I'm laughing and, you know, I'm just, it's so funny. And I just, want it to go on and then I remember oh no 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 I'm I'm part of this I have to <laughs> I have to focus you know if good lights are key and music is a high point in the hit and run theater improv experience a lot of the reception we have gotten has been dependent on our audiences and in Mendocino we have been lucky to have some good ones over the years we have had a lot of guests come up to play with us and they seem to have universally appreciated the experience Guests from Los Angeles theater sports to British comedians to filmmakers at the Mendocino Film Festival have all talked about the positive experiences they've had working in front of Mendocino audiences. Oh, well, um, Mendo audiences are wonderful. They just, they're just so warm and so easily pleased. That's true of many events that happen here. You know, I've been to some of the film festival events and the 
presenters and the filmmakers love us. They love the Mendocino audience because we're warm, we're forgiving, and we really appreciate it. The audience, by the way, in Mendocino, playing any gig in Mendocino over an extended span of time, we had the best audiences. They wanted us to do well. They didn't show up to be critical of what we weren't doing. They showed up to appreciate what we were doing. So in terms of having an audience in, we'll call it a, a backwoods hamlet or something like that, we did so well. We were so fortunate. They fluffed our pillows, man. It was just, it, it was really wonderful. And people would come from out of town to play Mendocino because they appreciated the audiences so much and the audiences appreciated them. We were super fortunate for decades to be able to play in such a warm and giving community who appreciated what we were putting out towards him. Back in the early days, perhaps it seemed like these groups of transplanted hippies were in need of a few laughs, and they sure showed up to have a good time. Pamela Stoneham remembers those first shows at Crown Hall and at the Casper Inn. And the whole town and community was part of that memory as well. For me, I was thinking about what we did on stage, and it, there was a lot. We did a lot for a lot of years, but also the people who came to see it. I mean, it was such an amazing feeling to have so much support. And people come up to you afterwards and say, thank you, I needed to laugh. God, I needed that. Thank you, you know. And to be able to go in front of an audience on a Friday night and know that there was going to be people who were just going to be having laughing together and having a great time, that was just incredibly, it's, it's a whole circle. It's not just what was on stage, but it was also what was going out from the other side. Um, for me, myself, people say, well, doesn't that terrify you to be up there? I said, are you kidding? That's where I, that's where I feel safe because up there I can do anything. I can be anyone. I can endow myself with being brilliant, you know, um, not so good on the real world, you know? So to me, it was like, it was a, a playground that was really, it was home, yeah. you know? And as Ellen reminds us, we were all each other's best audience. You know, so we were, we were kind of doing a public service at the same time. So it was a symbiosis that was happening between the audience slash community and us who just wanted to hang out together, you know? And, and I think there was a certain degree that it was clear that we had so much fun with each other. You know, I mean, we would crack each other up. We were literally our own best audience. So I think I'm convinced sometimes people just came to see us laugh at each other. <laughs> and Patty DiMatteo, who produced us for eight solid years at the Hill House, has fond memories of the kind of audiences we were lucky to have. <laughs> you know, uh, Hit and Run actually created an incredible atmosphere in the audience of being able to escape everyday life and go into fantasy land <laughs> into uh, totally spontaneous and surprising uh, ways of thinking. I mean, you guys are so wacky. I couldn't hardly believe some of the things that you came up with. So I always like to uh, say goodbye to people on their way out, and there was only one main exit so i got to see probably 90 percent 95 percent of the audience and everyone was enlightened or shall i say um 
risen a higher level of consciousness because they were able to, oh gosh, how would, I don't know how to say this. They were able to be more open and uh, delighted and joyful um, and take it with them, you know, because as they left the room, they had huge smiles. They were happy. And so as far as audiences, this was my most successful events because of that. Other thing about the audience, which was really lovely for Mendocino was the cross section of the people in the audience. You know, people who would come to specific shows like music shows and then not to the dances and things like that. But this kind of a show with Hit and Run brought all of those people together. And that that was pretty touching. You know, I don't have any stats of how many events I actually put on, but uh, let's see, 50 in a year, and it was almost 10 years. So in the beginning, I didn't do that many, but then I got kind of um, hooked on it. And I have to say that uh, these were the most fun uh, satisfying and successful shows that I produced. I loved all the members of Hit and Run. I do love them all still. And I uh, really enjoyed seeing all of them. I felt the love. I really did feel real deep love from every member. So in that way, uh, very um, uh, fed me, really f fed me. In addition, there was always a sense of wonderful camaraderie or that high that one gets being with a group or a troop or a gang of folks. We have been through different configurations and constellations since we first called ourselves Hit and Run Theater back in 1979, but we've always had fun as a group. With team spirit at its core, for me, being in Hit and Run Theater was a lot like being on a fun sports team. It was kind of like co-ed sports. Christine got the vibe early on. And, you know, I think that I think that one of the things that really got me was the sense of camaraderie. That's what I really liked. Because as, after I started working out with you guys, I felt like everybody was really interested in supporting each other. And that felt, it just felt incredibly sweet. It just felt, it was just loving, actually. And so did Lighting Meister, Sally Worson. Just that I love being with you guys. And when I'm with you guys, I feel... Again, like I said, part of the team. I am part of the team. And that's really great. It's, I don't think so. I, I know Eileen felt the same way. She loved doing it. You know, it's just, it's a great gig. It's just a really great gig. It's my favorite doing lights anywhere. And, you know, oh, I know what I'd say, but this is a plug. Um, it'd be great to have a real light board. But then... <laughs> That's beyond our control. Harry Rothman still sees his time with Hit and Run as one of the great times of friendship and spirit in his life. But the, the bond that we forged was, I, I don't know how it happened. I don't have friends like you guys anywhere else. It, it's, you know, it's uh, the, all of that work together and so much intensity and power going into a common project was I mean, I've never, like I said, I've not really ever had that experience again completely. On a practical note, in terms of what I got out of doing improv with Hit and Run Theater, I'm suing it. 
I, I did it for 14 years of my previous job. I'm doing it now at my new job. And that's improv. Go roll the float. Don't say no. Say yes and, and keep it going the best I can. And I've been doing that forever. How do you all have, sign off on it so that you all have that sense of real ownership and, you know, that you feel that you're, it's legitimately part of you and you're part of it, that your voice is represented and what you want to say is represented, you know, whether in, however you do it, whether it's broad comedy or serious, you know, monologue or however, and then, it, it, and learning how to work together is really important. And there's a lot of process involved. I mean, even with hit and run, I mean, I have memories of us sitting around having these really heavy conversations about, you know, what was going to happen next, you know, different turning points and stuff like that, or when somebody was going to leave for a spell or, you know, for whatever circumstances, life didn't want to do it for a while, you know, you know, we, we lost people, you know, when we, early on, we lost Jim Noyes to cancer. And that was, you know, so there was a lot of real stuff happening all around us, but we carried on. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with that, you know, commitment and, and to collaboration and being, you know, believing in what you're doing. And I also think that, you know, improv, you know, and I say this all the time to people, so improv is one of the best skills you can learn to live in life because, you know, what life is always throwing stuff at you, you know, and if you can really, instead of going no, I mean, it's interesting to see how many people out there just say no is their first response, you know, and now, of course, if you're in Harvard Business School, they teach improv. I don't know if you knew that. That's part of the requirement now, you know, because everybody's realizing, oh, yes, and. So suddenly, yes, and has become part of the national vernacular. Ellen represents it well in a Die Story she was directing. Die Story is a shared narrative with the director. The director sits in front and points to each of the players, who then take over the story until she switches to the next player. Somebody else would like to see the Speedy Blues up thing. 
Rick Perry. Rick Perry, I heard. <laughs> What's your blow drop? <laughs> Rick Perry has a hair. He's a debonair. He laughs all the time at who knows what. I can still see it from my camera eyes, you know, position of being, you know, directing a die story, for example. And everybody is in that semicircle and they're all looking at me and I'm, you know, and I'm directing it. But, you know, it was so great for me because I could, I would see the intensity and focus in everybody's eyes and just be delighted at whatever came out of your mouths, you know, because we'd surprise each other. I mean, that was always the thing that was so fun, too, you know, is to be able to surprise each other and then run with it, you know. And I think that's one of the reasons to this day we have that bond, you know, because we did trust each other and we happened on each other at a really good point in our lives. Yeah, improv has, yeah, it was a game changer, a life changer. And I'm so privileged and honored and happy to have taught so many people in so many places and in so many different ways. All of that goes back to hit and run. The through line and my trajectory of who I am, oh, I'm going to get emotional, and how who I am was absolutely influenced by hit and run theater. Who I am as a person, who I am as a performer, who I am as a teacher, hit and run. You educated me. I was, I was a freaking wild wolf child who didn't get anything. I didn't know how to do, I just, I was feral in many ways and incredibly, uh, so too long of a story, but hit and run shaped. You all gave me form and shape. I learned how to be with people. I learned how to be in a group. I learned how to be in a family through hit and run in ways that I was not, I didn't know how to do. I didn't learn in any other way. And hit and run, everybody in hit and run are still my family, my closest friends, the most important people to me after all of these years. And that is astonishing. And when we get together and talk, we all agree like how, how miraculous that is that we're still in each other's lives. Okay, I love everyone in hit and run. I love you, Doug. I, one, I just have to say the fact that we are still in each other's lives after all these years and after being a couple and comedy partners means so much to me. I love you. I love Ellen, Harry, Whiny, Pamela, Kathy. I love, you know, I love the people who came after who I haven't even met that is part of this continuum. And I'm honored to be part of that history. It shaped me and molded me. We will end on a song from our absolute most recent show from November 5th, 2022 at the Casper Community Center. It was a song format we learned from Whose Line Is It Anyway, the Irish drinking song. This one features the voices of Doug Nunn, Jill Lemos, Mindy Ballantyne, and Ken Krause, that's me, and the keyboard accompaniment of Mr. Joshua Raul Brody. It's Improvised Comedy by Hit and Run Theater. Well, I used to go to church 
every freaking Sunday. And then I decided one day, why not stay at home? So I stayed at home and laid on my ass and drank a bunch and had a great smack. That's when I decided Sunday was better not in church. Two of A History of Hit and Run Theater includes reflections from Ellen Callis, Kathy O'Grady, Pamela Stoneham, Jill Lemus, Harry Rothman, Steve Weingarten, Richard Feenbach, Tracy Burns, Christine Samus, Ken Krauss, Mindy Ballantyne, Janet Atherton, Alanya Eisenberg, Dan Sullivan, Nicole Paravicini, Patty DiMatteo, Joshua Raul Brody, Sally Wearson, and myself, Doug Nunn. We would like to thank video and audio recorders, Bessie Krause, Dirk Yehelka, Marco McLean, Mike Evans, Bob Kapitoff, and many others. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hochsprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominie Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. <laughs> 